This is a series that we've started because we're exploring what are the things that you and I need to do to become all that God has for us in 2020. Now, how many of you would say that you would like to leave this year, the end of 2020, a different person than you are right now? How many of you would say that? All of us, right? Especially this time of year, we're seeing a lot of advertising and commercials for things that can help you become a better person, a new person in this new year, whether it's signing up for this new subscription, whether it's getting a Peloton, whatever it is, everybody's trying to sell you on this idea that you can be a new person this year, that you could be a different person, that you can live your best life this year. But the reality is most people will leave 2020 the exact same way that they came in. The truth is if you and I want to be the people that God has called us to be, if we want to reach new places, go new places, uh, then what are the things that you and I have to do right here and right now to become that person? The reality is nobody wakes up on January 1st all of a sudden with all of their to-do list done, all of the changes already made, all of the bad habits already dealt with. The reality is you and I have to take steps right here and now to, to be the men, to be the women that God has called us to be. And so in this new you series, I believe the Lord has given me four things, four topics, four commitments that if you and I make these four commitments, you and I will be new people at the end of this year. And so the four commitments are devotion. I was doing a little bit of uh, studying and digging around online, trying to find some uh, statistics or quotes that I could find about community. And uh, it, it was challenging to find things about community because a lot of things came up about local communities uh, but I did stumble across some statistics about loneliness, which I'd like to read to you this morning. So there's a, a global health company called Cigna, and they did a survey of over 20,000 adults in the United States, and they found that 46% of U.S. adults report sometimes or always feeling lonely. And Cigna, as a health company, said 46%. It said those are epidemic levels of loneliness, that we have this loneliness epidemic that is happening in our culture. They did a, a way to uh, break it down between generations. They wanted to find out, are elderly people the most lonely? Is it middle-aged people? Are, are the new generations, the millennials, the Gen Z, are they the ones that are most lonely? And so they did this study where they had a, a scale from 20 to 80, 20 being the least lonely, 80 being the most lonely, and here's what they found on the different generations. They found that on this scale, baby boomers scored a 38.6. So that was uh, their, their first group that they studied. The next group was a little bit more lonely. They were at 45.1. That was Gen X. So they found that Gen Xers were uh, more likely to be lonely than the previous generation. Millennials came in even slightly higher. Millennials were 45.3 on this loneliness scale. And then the most recent generation, Gen Z, came in at 48.1 on this loneliness scale. So Gen Z is uh, young, uh, young adults that are 22 and under. That's the new generation that has reached adulthood now. And so they were shocked to find that as each generation goes by, each generation is getting more and more lonely and isolated. Now, like me, you were probably thinking that the biggest indicator of it was social media. 
Uh, but interestingly, they found that in all the people that they polled, the people who were active social media users had relatively the same scores as people in their generation that did not use social media actively. So what is it that's happening? What is it that's going on? Another statistic I want to give you is from uh, U.S. Census data. They found that in 1960, 13% of households in the United States were single-person households. This means somebody who lives by themselves. Now, 58 years later, by 2018, they found that number had over-doubled to becoming 28% of all households. Now, if that's the case, that 28% of Americans live alone, chances are there's 28% of people in this room who live alone. And there's nothing wrong with living alone by any means. Some people prefer it that way, they enjoy it that way, other people are living alone not by their choice. Maybe their spouse died. But there's nothing inherently wrong with being alone. Some people who live alone are not lonely, but some people are. But one of the things that I found as I looked at some of the census data is that young adults are pushing marriage off further down the road. Or if they do get married, they're pushing having kids off down the road or having less kids. And I'll say this, as a young adult myself and as somebody who knows a lot of young adults, Sometimes the church puts too much pressure on young adults to get married and to start having kids. So this isn't about putting pressure on anybody. Some people are living single and very happily with that, and that's the way the Lord wants it. But what this demographic does tell us is this, is that because people are getting married later or having less kids, it means that people by nature are just alone more of the time. So my grandparents, for example, got married when they were 18 years old. That sounds literally insane. They had all of their kids by the time they were 21 years old. Again, literally insane. I for sure was not ready to have kids at 21 years old. But in that generation, you were just more likely to have a bigger family, to have more family around you. And so what this means is there's nothing wrong with living alone, but it does mean that you and I have to be more intentional about finding community. You guys with me? One more, I read an article in The Atlantic, and the article was called, Loneliness is Instagram's Hottest Trend. So this article talks about how, who are the followers on social media? Who are the users? Who are the people that get the most likes? Who are the ones that have the biggest accounts? And they found this interesting trend. Here's what they wrote about the quote, it girl. They said, in a different era, the it girl was someone whose photo was taken by onlookers at all the good parties. The new it girl is someone who takes photos of herself at home. She spends her time alone. These young women, stag notes, are more often than not self-described homebodies, even antisocial. Now, this isn't a sermon against introverts, because believe it or not, I'm actually an, an introvert myself. You might not know that because I'm loud and I talk a lot, uh, but I actually oftentimes prefer to be alone. But one of the interesting things they found on this study was the, the, the it girl in a previous generation was one who was going to parties, had a ton of friends, always going to different events. And what they found was, and this wasn't uh, any sort of uh, uh, subjective study, they weren't trying to prove anything. They were just observing these trends that more and more what you see on social media is the it girl, the people everybody wants to be like, the, the accounts with the most followers are, are from people who are isolated. They're from people who are alone. And so we're in a culture where statistically each generation is getting more and more lonely. 
Each generation is getting more and more isolated. And now even our, our role models are loners. Our role models are not the ones who are out partying, having a good time. Our role models are those who are introverted, those who are not out partying with everybody else, but they're antisocial, they're homebodies. Now, where, where does this come from? Where does this idea come from? Why is this the case that, that this is happening with each new generation? You and I live in a, a Western culture that operates differently from different cultures around the world. So if you'll permit me for a minute to have a little bit of cultural commentary. There's different types of cultures in the world. So in traditional cultures, Eastern cultures, in the Middle East, in Africa, in, uh, in Asia, in some of these more traditional style cultures, a hero is somebody who uh, pushes away, who gives up their wants and their needs for the goods of the tribe. They put aside what they want to do, they put aside their agenda, and they find their identity from their tribe. And it can be dangerous in a traditional culture to deviate from your tribe. So for example, if you grow up in the Middle East with Muslim parents, and you decide that you don't want to be Muslim anymore, that can be a very dangerous thing. In fact, even your life might be in danger. If you're in an Asian culture, Parents have very high expectations for their kids to succeed in school, to get certain grades, to accomplish certain things. And if you don't meet those expectations, you're seen as someone who brought dishonor to the family. So that's how that works in those cultures. Now, in Western cultures, it's different. In Western cultures, you don't get your identity from your tribe. In Western cultures, a hero, somebody who is noble, somebody who is strong, is somebody who exerts their wants and their desires over the wants and desires of their tribe. This is what it means to be American, that you don't have to do what your dad did for a living. You don't have to believe what your parents live. You have freedom of speech. You have freedom of religion, that you can be anything that you want. You can accomplish anything that you want. Now, there are a lot of benefits to that, the freedoms that we have as Americans that you and I don't take for granted. There's a lot of benefits that come with that culture that you and I are a part of. But some of the, the downsides to being in an individualistic culture is that because the individual is now the highest authority, nobody wants any sort of uh, leadership or authority structure telling them what to do, right? As, as modern people, we're suspicious of people with authority. We're suspicious of people who claim to have the whole truth. Right, so in our culture, you can't say that you have the capital T truth. You say that you have a truth, right? So that what's true for Pastor Dave, that's his truth, but I have to make my own truth. And so in Western cultures, the individual is God. That we find our identity not from your tribe or what from your parents did. We find our identity by looking deep down inside ourselves and deciding who we want to be. And so what happens is whatever desire you feel on the inside, that must be who you really are. And if you don't act that out, that's seen as inauthentic. And so a lot of benefits come from being a Western culture. There's a lot of benefits to the freedom of religion, the freedom of speech. But the downside is, because the individual is the highest authority, there's no room for community anymore. Because community, by definition, whether it's in marriage, whether it's a friendship, whether it's in a church, to commit yourself to a community is by definition to limit your own individual freedoms. 
that when I got married to Kelly, I gave up certain freedoms to gain a bunch of other freedoms in marriage. You guys tracking with me? So what happens is, in this Western culture of individualism, each generation, in the name of freedom, is getting more and more lonely. In the name of freedom, we have isolated ourselves. We see communities as restrictive. Communities limit our self-expression. Communities limit our ability to pursue our dreams. Communities hold us back from becoming who we really want to be. And so what's happened is in the name of freedom, we have become more and more isolated and alone. Now we're going to turn to the Bible here so we can make this a real sermon, make it an official sermon. But there's this growing trend that's happening before our eyes. Now I know when I dive into some of the the cultural commentary, some of you that's not your cup of tea, you don't like it. But the reason I wanted to just take a few minutes with that introduction, that extended introduction, is because we've just all grown up in this Western culture that we don't realize the lenses through which we're seeing the world. Sometimes we don't realize the, the strengths and weaknesses of our culture. Now I'm not saying that traditional cultures are all better or all worse. I'm just saying that every culture has benefits, there's pros, there's cons. And it's important for us as the church, as people who have the word of God, to speak truth to our culture, to affirm our culture where it's correct, and to rebuke our culture where it's gone astray. And so in a culture that prizes individualism, in a culture where even the government is of the people, by the people, and for the people, right? We don't have kings ruling over us. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. In a culture where the individual is God, we come to the words of the New Testament. We come to the words of the Bible, which have a radically different understanding of how you and I are called to be. You see, the Bible doesn't tell you to get your identity from your tribe. And the Bible doesn't tell you to look deep down in your heart and decide who you want to be. The Bible tells you to get your identity from who Jesus is and from what Jesus has done on our behalf. That is who you and I are called to be. Here's what 1 John 3.16 says. It says, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. You see, in a culture which prizes individualism, these words of the New Testament become radical. These words of the New Testament, that you would lay down your rights, lay down your freedoms, lay down some of the individual dreams that you have for the sake of somebody else, is a radical. Hebrews 10, 24-25 says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. That he says that you and I as believers could spur each other on, encourage one another towards love and towards good deeds. That we would not neglect to meet together. Psalm 133 says this, How good and how pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head running down the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. 
So David, who, who wrote this psalm, he says, it's good, it's pleasant when God's people dwell together in unity. That this isn't about you and I each individually having our own personal relationship with Jesus and we never interact with anybody else. Don't get me wrong, your relationship with Jesus should be personal, but it shouldn't only be personal. That there's a pleasantness, a goodness, when we dwell together in unity. He says that it's, it's like this precious oil running down on Aaron's beard. Now, if you're not familiar with some of the language and the symbolism of the Old Testament, it makes absolutely no sense to talk about oil in a guy's beard. But what he's talking about here is the high priest. In the Old Testament, what we see is that when somebody was anointed with oil, it was an outward sign of an inward work, just like baptism. The, the outpouring of the oil was a, was a prophetic picture of the outpouring of the Spirit on somebody's life. And so just as the high priest, when he would minister, he would be anointed with oil to symbolize the Holy Spirit. David is saying when you and I gather together, we are welcoming the outpouring of the Spirit. That there is an encounter with God that you cannot have on your own. There is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that only comes when brothers dwell together in unity. If there is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that doesn't come when you're off by yourself in your prayer closet, as important as that is. There's an outpouring that comes when you and I decide, even though it's hard, even though it's confusing, even though people with their personality traits drive me crazy, we are going to dwell in unity. And there is an anointing that comes with that. He said in verse 3, It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Now, I was a little bit curious about these, uh, these two mountains, so Mount Zion and Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Zion, that's the city of Jerusalem. Zion is the mountain that the city of Jerusalem was built upon. That's where David lived as the king. So if you see Zion in the Bible, it's synonymous with the city of Jerusalem. So I knew that. But I was wondering about this, this Mount Hermon. So I was doing some digging, and I was trying to find some background. What is, what is this place? What is the dew of Mount Hermon? And as I studied, I found that Hermon had a reputation for being an exotic place full of life, growth, plants. There was trees. Now remember, it's, Israel is in the Middle East. Israel is a desert climate. So to have a mountain that has plants and gardens and greenery that's growing, that is a rare and beautiful thing. To give you an idea about Hermon, Hermon is actually, Mount Hermon is mentioned in the Song of Solomon. So that's all you need to know about it. It is a romantic getaway. That is the place where you went on your anniversary. There's this dew on Hermon that brings life. There's a dew that brings plants and vegetation where, in a climate where nothing else really can grow, Mount Hermon has life. So here's what he says. He says, it's as if the dew of Hermon we're falling on Mount Zion. Now, how does dew from one mountain fall on another? I, I was doing some digging. It turns out Mount Hermon is actually 120 miles from Mount Zion. Now, I'm no scientist, but dew does not travel 120 miles from one city to another, right? And yet, here's what David is saying. He's saying when brothers dwell together in unity, 
It's as if this dew, this, this water which brings life, which brings health, which brings wholeness, is somehow supernaturally being transported to Zion where we live. That it's as if the blessing and the favor of God that in no other way, inexplicably, miraculously, gets brought to us. That when you and I dwell together in unity, it supernaturally attracts the blessing, the favor, and the prosperity of God. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on us here in Zion. It's as if the, the miracles of God, the prosperity of God, somehow, because you and I came together, supernaturally attracts the favor and grace of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I could use some favor and grace in my life. I don't know about you, but I could use some blessing in my life. And David says, here's how you do it. By dwelling together in unity. By coming together. You and I are positioned to encounter the favor of God. Galatians 3 says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So he says, for those of you who have been baptized, you have put on Christ. Now, for those of you who have been baptized, you know that baptism represents what? Death. Baptism is about you going down, not just into the water to get wet, but symbolically, you're going down to die. Your old life is being buried with Christ in baptism. And so he says, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile any longer. See, Paul wrote the book of Galatians because Jewish Christians were saying that the people of God always followed these certain laws from the Old Testament. The people of God, all the Jewish baby boys were circumcised on the eighth day. And that's what it looks like to join the family of God. And here Paul is saying it doesn't matter any longer, Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, because all have been brought together in the Messiah. That the basis of our unity is not that we all uh, have the same nationality, it's not that we're the same age, it's not that we vote the same, it's that all of us have died to that old identity, died to that old life, and now we've all been brought to new life in the Messiah. You see, when Jesus rose from the grave and he gave you new life, he didn't just take you with him, he took all of us with him. And so if you are in the Messiah, you are also part of the body of the Messiah, which is the church. That when Jesus called his disciples, they didn't just get a personal one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. They got stuck with the other 11, which drove them crazy all the time. That's what happens when you and I follow Jesus. Now, why has God called us into a community? I want to give you just two reasons briefly. Number one is that God is himself a community. And here's what I mean by that. So as Christians, we are what is called monotheists, meaning we worship one God. We don't worship three gods. We don't worship 12 gods or 12,000 gods. We worship one God. And yet, somehow, this one God has revealed himself in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And these three persons are not just 
three hats that the same God wears. No, these are actually three distinct persons. It's not like each one of them is one-third God. Each one of them is fully God. And I don't claim to understand how it works. I don't claim to have the whole thing figured out. But what I do know is this, is that God is a community. And if you and I are made in the image of God, that means you and I are made for community. You and I are made in the image of a communal God. We are made in the image of a God who is himself three. And so what that means is this, you and I, down in the very core of our being, we are wired for community. When Adam was in the garden by himself, he, was, he, was, he had dominion over all the animals. And yet God said it is not good for man to be alone. It's not good for you and I as individuals to be out there on our own just doing our own thing. And so we serve this God who just in himself is this exchange of love and generosity, of give and take. And so when you and I pledge ourselves to follow this God, we are joining the community. We are joining the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we are joining the fellowship of the church. The second reason is that we accomplish more together than we can on our own. Leviticus 26, 8 says this. It says, five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase 10,000. This isn't some five-on-five scrimmage, church. This is five-on-a-hundred. Now, I'm no expert in math, but I do have a calculator. That, if you look at five taking on a hundred, that's one on 20. Can you imagine going into a fight with 20 people and winning? You better be the Hulk and the Terminator combined. Five of you will chase a hundred. And then he says, a hundred of you will chase 10,000. Now, if you do the math there, That's one on a hundred. What is he saying here? He's saying that when you and I come together, we don't just accomplish more because we add up all of our accomplishments. No, you and I as individuals actually become more effective when we're with a body of believers. This isn't addition. It's multiplication, church, that you will grow and multiply and do more than you ever could on your own when you are surrounded by a body of people who are in this thing with you. And if you are going to become the man that God has called you to be, the woman that God has called you to be in 2020, it's not going to happen because you're going to try really hard on your own to make this thing work. It's going to happen because you surround yourself with brothers and sisters in Christ who are going through the same thing you are. Church, there are people in this room who have been through things already that you're currently going through. On the flip side, some of you have been through things that somebody else in this room is going through right now, and you can help them. There is a a blessing that comes and a victory that comes when we unite together. So the enemy comes, and he tries to isolate. He tries to divide. If God is the one who's a community, if God is the one who unites, who reconciles, God is the one who brings peace. Then the enemy is the one who tries to isolate us. The enemy is the one who tries to divide and conquer. 
The enemy's the one who tries to separate us because he knows if he can get us on our own, he can overpower us. And so he introduces sin into our lives, sin which separates us from God, sin which separates us from other people. And so Jesus came to destroy the works of the enemy. Jesus comes to unite us to himself and to unite us to each other. And so Christ, that we've all become one in the Messiah. And the enemy's going to try and come. He's going to try and isolate. He's going to try and cause offense. He's going to let personality traits conflict. He's going to tell you that you don't need those super annoying people, that you can do it better on your own. This is the lie that all of us hear, and sometimes that we believe. That working with other believers is hard work. And so if God comes to unite us, then the end result of sin from the enemy is loneliness. The end result, once sin has its work in your life, you will be isolated and alone. And so Jesus comes to restore. First Peter warns us about the enemy. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, if you've ever watched Discovery Channel or one of those nature shows, you know that, like Peter said, that the lions go around looking, looking for prey. And what do they do? A lion will not attack an entire herd of prey. Why? Because that lion will be overwhelmed. He'll be fought off. So what does the lion do? He tries to find some sort of prey that's isolated, one that's cut off from the rest of the herd, one that's sick or weak or straggling, not paying attention to where the herd is going, because that lion knows if the prey is by himself, by herself, that he can overpower them. And so Peter says, watch out, church. Watch out, community of believers, because your enemy, the devil, is just like this roaring lion. And he is looking for someone to devour. He is looking for someone to devour. But if you and I can unite together as believers, then we can resist him firm in the faith. The enemy knows that he can isolate you, that he can pick you off, pick us off one by one. But it's when you and I are united together that we stand strong. Peter said, resist him, firm in the faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He reminds them, listen, you are not alone. You are not in this by yourself. Now, I don't want to pretend, I don't want to just sugarcoat this. Community is hard work. Community is annoying sometimes. Community is obnoxious sometimes. Can I get an amen, church? I won't lie to you. There has been many times in my life, and I'm sure in your life, when you thought, forget this, I'm doing it on my own. I don't need those other people anymore. I don't want to sugarcoat it and pretend like if we just all hear one sermon on community, we'll all just cuddle and be happy all the time. That would be great if that was the case. But community is hard work. And I want to tell you something. If you only decide to be in community you, with people you agree with, you will end up isolated and alone very quickly. 
If I was only in community with people that I never had any offense against, I would have zero friends. If I was only in community with people that I never offended, I would have zero friends. Church, offense is inevitable. Conflict is inevitable. But it's worth it. It is worth fighting through. There's no relationship in your life that is conflict-free. There's no relationship in your life that has zero tension. There's nobody on the planet that agrees with you 100% about everything. And so the question is, how do we deal with this inevitable conflict? I'd like to spend the next four hours lecturing on conflict resolution, because we all need it sometimes. But I'm going to say one line, and then I'm going to move on here, because we've got to close. When it comes to conflict, do not avoid it. Speak the truth in love. That's the only solution. There are some people who like confrontation a little bit too much. Those people are sick. They enjoy confronting. Other people, they're so scared of offending anybody that they'll just pretend like everything's fine and it's not fine. And neither one of those are healthy approaches to community. A healthy approach is to speak the truth, but do it in love. So I want to close here with the final few points. The reality is all communities are dysfunctional because all people are dysfunctional. How many of you are feeling encouraged right now? The reality is there's no perfect marriage because there's no perfect people. There's no perfect governments because imperfect politicians are leading. There's no perfect businesses because there's no perfect entrepreneurs. There's no perfect families because there's no perfect parents and no perfect kids. All of us have weaknesses. All of us have insecurities. All of us have doubts. All of us have areas where our personality really rubs the wrong way with somebody else of a different personality. That's just part of life. And yet, God has called us to be united. Not because we all agree on everything, not because we're all from the same race, not because we're all men or we're all women or we're all young or we're all old, not because we all vote the same way, but all of us, brothers and sisters, old and young, have been brought together in the Messiah. Your old life, my old life in the Messiah. We've all been brought together under our Savior. And so now you and I, we don't just get Jesus as the head of the body. We have joined the rest of the body. Paul says every member of the body is like an eye, an ear, a hand, a foot. And you know what that means? It means that you will not be healthy apart from the rest of the body. You know what else it means? It means the body will not be healthy without you. That if, if you're just the hand and you decide to go off and do your own thing, you're not going to be able to do a lot of work with that hand. And not only will you suffer, the rest of the body will be suffering without that hand. Church, we need you. I need you. You need me. I'm ready to start singing Barney at this point. <laughs> Church, God has called us to be in community. And I believe if you and I 
commit ourselves to community, we will become all that God has for us this year. I genuinely believe that. In a culture where the individual is God, making a sacrifice for community is a radical thing. Being a radical believer in America in 2020, yes, it looks like praying and reading your Bible. Yes, it looks like standing up for what the Bible says is right. But it also looks like being in community, in a culture which has no room for it. And so what I'd like to do is get practical just for the last two or three minutes here. I want to tell you that community has to look like something here at Rock of Grace. Community can't just be, yeah, I'll try harder to to shake somebody's hand during the greeting time instead of just sitting down. Community has to be more than just giving somebody a phone call now and then. Community looks like doing life together. That's the call that Jesus gave us. And so a rock of grace, community looks like two things. Number one, community looks like Sunday services. Church, there's no substitute for a Sunday service. There's no substitute for us gathering together to pray for each other like we did earlier, to worship the Lord together, to give, to hear the word that is preached, to to serve in different ministries, to catch up with each other, to see how they're doing. That is so central to what you and I do as a body of believers. And can I tell you, watching online is not a good substitute. Now we have online for elderly people, people who are in the hospital, people who are sick and can't come. But the problem with only watching online, if you can be here otherwise and you don't, is that watching online is inherently selfish. Because watching in line is about what you can receive instead of about what you can give. When we come on a Sunday morning, it's not about you just receiving as a spectator. When you come on a Sunday morning, it's so we can pray for each other, so we can worship together, so we can serve each other, so we can check in with each other. There's no substitute for the Sunday service, church. I know that sounds harsh, but it's because I care about you. I know so many people who said, yeah, I've just been busy. I'll just start watching online. And next thing you know, they fell off the map. But it's when you're here that you're accountable to people. It's when you're here that we're checking in with each other, that we're encouraging each other. But as Hebrews says, we're encouraging each other towards love and to good works. So don't neglect to meet together. But number two is community looks like life groups. Now, what are life groups? Life groups are our name, our term for gathering together in each other's homes throughout the week. We are launching five new life groups today. And these are groups where I'm not going to be preaching. These are groups where you can be discipled and make disciples. Let's be honest. When you're here on a Sunday morning, everybody's facing one direction. Everybody's facing towards me. And that's good, but it's not enough. There's something that happens when you sit around a table with somebody and have a meal with them. There's something holy about sitting in a living room discussing the things of the Lord. You see, on a Sunday morning, you're just part of a crowd. You're just sitting next to somebody, maybe somebody sitting in a different section. But God has not called you to sit in a crowd, church. 
He's called you to join and serve a community. For a lot of people, especially those who are busy on Sunday mornings, sometimes people work on Sunday mornings, and I understand that. But life groups are a chance for you to be discipled. Like I said earlier, there's people in this church who have been through things that you're going through now, and you wouldn't even know it just from a Sunday morning. But it's in life groups that people can disciple you better. And on the flip side, there are times in life group where you have, you're going to be able to share a testimony of something you've been through that somebody's going through right now in this church, and you didn't even know it. Some of you, there's people in first service that need to hear what you have to say. There's somebody sitting on the other side of the room that needs to hear what you have to say. The church is not about the pastor as the big guy on top who tells everybody what to do. The church is about us coming together to be discipled and to make disciples. You know who the disciple makers are in this church? It's you guys. All of us as a body have decided to follow Jesus and to help others follow him as well.